All right. Well, good to see you guys this morning. Uh, we are going to continue our journey through the Gospel of John. Last week, we talked about an individual by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus thought he was a good dude and uh, that he was acceptable in God's eyes because he followed all of the laws. Uh, but Jesus turned his world upside down by telling him he needed to be born again. So his Jewish birth, which is what many Jews thought would, was kind of their golden ticket to be near to God, and law-keeping, those two things were not enough for Nicodemus. He needed to be born again, and this completely confused Nicodemus because he had no idea, no concept for this category that he would need to be born again. And what we see Jesus doing as he does repeatedly throughout the Gospels is he's taking physical examples and he's pointing to greater spiritual realities. That's what he was doing with Nicodemus. And I know I've talked about this a number of times throughout the series because Jesus does this. John writes his gospel in this way that he takes these physical examples and points to spiritual realities. I just wanted to uh, push on this a little bit this morning because sometimes this kind of stuff can get ambiguous. Um, but part of my hope as I'm highlighting this reality, the way, the way that the Bible is written, the way that Jesus works, is that you guys would begin to sense this in your own lives. That when you get angry, that when you feel hungry, that when you are tempted in physical ways, that you would understand God is there for you. And he's doing work in and through these physical means, these experiences that you're having, the feelings that you're feeling. When you're feeling angry, God provides a way out. And he wants us to trust in him in that moment, not to cave, to our ang cave into our anger, not to lash out at somebody, but to rely on him, to trust in him so he would provide us the patience, the grace that we need in those moments. So as we talk about this throughout the series, I hope that this is something that you guys, it's, it's be kind of calibrating you at some level in your own Christian walk, that as you encounter whatever physical scenario it is that you would be mindful you would be sensitive to God's spirit he's doing something in you around you so be attentive to what he's seeking to do all right so we're going to be in John 3 this morning uh, I'm going to pick it up in verse 16 so if you guys want to turn in your Bibles there or swipe on your devices you also can follow along on the screen behind me if you would like so John 316. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out 
in God. All right, so in these six verses or so that we're looking at this morning, I want to make a qualification here at the beginning. Uh, So there is debate as to who said this. Some people believe that this is a continuation of Jesus speaking what he was saying uh, at the end of the text that we looked at last week. So there's some people that think that, and even my Bible is in red letters, so it's saying Jesus said this. Uh, Other people, um, who I would have tons of respect for, would would say this is a narration by John, that he is kind of commenting on what has happened with Nicodemus, and he's kind of giving his own spin at some level. Uh, But wherever someone might fall on this, I don't think it, it affects the interpretation. It doesn't change the meaning, whether it's Jesus saying it or it's John's narration of what has happened with Nicodemus. At the end of the day, God is still inspiring his word, and he's teaching us and communicating to us regarding uh, what happened with Nicodemus. So, but I wanted to let you guys know that, that there is, um, it, it's not a heated debate, uh, but there is people on both sides of the, the coin as to who, who ultimately said this. So, John 3.16 right? Uh, If you have any background in the church, uh, you maybe probably have memorized this. You've heard it a ton. You maybe got it slapped on a coffee cup somewhere, or at some point in your life, you've seen that. It is viewed by many as the best summary of the gospel in all of scripture. If you had to go to one verse to say this sums up the gospel, many people would go to John 3.16. So I want to break it down this morning. We're going to spend a good chunk of time just looking at this verse, um, but then we'll get into the other verses as well. So this begins, verse 16 begins with a strong conjunction of four, which we have to understand that what's going on here is there's a strong connection being tied with these verses that follow and what happened last week with Nicodemus. I think for many of us, we probably have heard this verse, and we think like, oh, well, it just, it's kind of a standalone verse. It's its, its own thing at some level. There's no context to it, but it has a ton of context, and it's, it's directly connected to, what, to the dialogue that Jesus and Nicodemus were having last week. So I'm going to try and draw some of that out as we go through this uh, a little bit. So it begins, for God so loved the world. So God's love is for the world. Now, for Nicodemus, this might, this might make him happy at some level, right? He's like, oh, well, he loves the world, and I'm included in the world. But then as he begins to think about this, he might think, oh, but the world is evil and wickedness, that I don't want to be in part of that. But then he would have to wrestle with God loves the world, which means Gentiles, So God is loving way beyond his Jewish concept of whom God loves. And so this would be scandalous. This would kind of blow him away in terms of what he had thought about God's love for people. He would have thought God loves his people. God's come to rescue his people. He's going to send the Messiah and save his people, Israel. But now Jesus is pushing this way beyond that idea. So what we need to see here is that this is the genesis of love in the sense that for God so loved the world. So God is initiating here. What he's doing is he's saying, 
Where there is no love in the world that's full of evil and wickedness, God is loving there. So God is initiating something that is not there. In the same way, if we would go back to the beginning of the Bible and we would see God creating there, it says that the expanse is covered in darkness. And God speaks light into that expanse. Similarly here, Jesus coming into the world is light invading darkness. So God is loving the world that hates him. Now, typically when we think about loving things, we think about, I'll love that which feeds me, that which gives me something, that which satisfies me. But that's not at all what Jesus is doing. He's loving those who hate him to the point that they will kill him eventually. This is scandalous, right? And if we think about Jesus seeks to form his people in his image, that we would become like him, So when we think about loving the world, loving those in our lives that are hard to love, that annoy us, that frustrate us, that we would rather not be around, this is the motivation. It's not, oh man, I got to do it. I'm supposed to do it. Pastor said I'm supposed to love people that I hate. But this is the motivation. Jesus loved you. And you were part of the world. He loved you. He brought love where there was no love. Where your heart was filled with hate, he brought love into your heart. So this is how we love, by looking at Jesus, has, how he has loved us first. Now, one thing that can be a little confusing here is, here it's talking about Jesus loving the world, but if you go to 1 John chapter 2, it says there, do not love the world, or the things in the world. So this could be a little confusing. Do we love the world? Do we not love the world? So just to draw a little distinction here, how these things work themselves out and still make sense, because we could say, uh, do I love the world? Do I not love the world? Uh, What's going on here? So Jesus, as he's talking, or whether this is John or Jesus in in, uh, our text this morning, what is being communicated here is a selfless love of redemption. It's a selfless love of redemption. Jesus is going to redeem that which is dark, that which is lost. Whereas in 1 John, what's being talked about is a selfish love of participation. So Jesus isn't coming in a selfish way to get what he wants. Well, he is coming to get what he wants, ultimately, I guess, but it's not in a selfish way. He's not making it about him. It's going to cost him. It's at his expense So what's going on here is a selfless love of redemption, not a selfish love of participation. That should be instructive for us as well as we think about walking through our days. Are are we seeking selfishly or selflessly? Are we embodying the, the gospel truthfully to others? So Jesus comes, and his love is costly. It causes him to give something up, his life specifically, right? So as we think about in our own lives how we love others, what we love, it will be costly. As it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. What do you give as you love? As you pursue others in some 
regard? Are you being called to give something up in that, or is it convenient for you? Are you being called to give up time, energy that you feel like you don't have, money that you'd rather not give? So here's the reality. If, if loving others for us is convenient, then it very well could not be love at all. It could be that selfish love of participation that 1 John 2 is talking about, not the selfless love that John is writing about here in his gospel. True love is costly. It hurts. It will cause us to give something up to some degree. So, Something you could ask, you can ask yourself, you can ask, uh, well, I guess in this case, ask a roommate, ask a spouse, ask a friend, a coworker, a neighbor, whatever it might be. How can I love you in a meaningful way? Rather than assuming you know how that person wants to be loved, how can I love you in a meaningful way? Or to ask yourselves, what am I giving up in this expression of love to somebody? Is it costly? Does it hurt? Does it sting at some level? Is it really love then? So this whole idea of giving something up. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This is building on the story when it says that he gave his only son. It's building on the Old Testament story of Abraham and Isaac. So God gives Abraham a son that was promised to him that he waited for many years and now he has it and God says go and sacrifice your son. And Abraham's like, what in the world? Like how, how are all those promises that you've made to me regarding my offspring being as numerous as the sand on the shore, as the stars in the sky, how is that going to come to, come to fruition? Like I have waited a hundred years for this son. And now you're telling me to go and kill him. But, but Abraham does. He obeys. He, he goes and does what God says to do. And we can look at this story and just be aghast at this command. right? How unloving is this of God? It's like he's just playing with him at some level. But when we see how this foreshadows the ultimate sacrifice, God giving up his son, what, when we look at Abraham and Isaac, we can say how unloving. When we look at Jesus as it applies to us, and we see that extravagant love for us, we welcome that, right? So what we abhor, in one sense, we welcome when it's applied to us. And one thing we can see here is God never demands more from us than himself. So God would never call us to sacrifice a child. We talked about this a couple months ago. Uh, what's going on with Abraham and Isaac was a specific instance where God was doing a specific thing, writing part of his specific story throughout history. So he, he would never call us to physically sacrifice our children. And yet, he does call us to sacrifice the idol of children, right? That, that we would think our whole world revolves around our children. He is their true and ultimate father. We are earthly mothers and fathers, but they are never intended to be an idol, to hold that place in our hearts that is central, where only Jesus is intended 
to reside. So God never demands more from us than himself. He gave his son. His son died. He did what we never could do and we would never want to do. Lastly here regarding uh, John 3.16. I think, whether it's John writing, Jesus speaking, I think this is a beautiful speaking to context. So this whole idea of giving something up. So Nicodemus, culturally, was unbelievably successful. He had authority. He had power. He was revered. He had followers. People would look at him and say, man, I would love to have that life. I would love to be in his shoes, to wield his power, to do what he is able to do. And I think part of what we see here is Nicodemus, in his exchange with Jesus, wasn't ready to give that up because he loved the world. He loved those things that were so attractive, that caused people to awe over him, to, to give him awe, to revere him at some level. And I think part of what's going on is, is Jesus is speaking into that. You love the world, Nicodemus. You're, you're unwilling to give up the very things that are keeping you from me. He's suppressing the truth, and, and really he's giving up nothing. He's giving up nothing because the ways in which he thinks he's going to be saved is by following the commands. And by following the commands, people look at him and are in awe of him. And so all of this is feeding, making it all about him. He's giving up nothing. He's getting exactly what he wants. People are giving him adulation and adoration. They're gazing at him, seeing how impressive he is, rather than how impressive God is. And so Jesus is speaking to his context, I think, in a very pointed way, calling him to give up his life, to give up his authority, to give up his position, to give up everything so that he might love Jesus and in that to be born again. Okay, verse 16, it also introduces this continual emphasis on belief, okay? So whoever believes in Jesus should not perish but have eternal life. So we've got that in verse 16. We go up last week in verse 15, it says, whoever believes in Jesus may have eternal life. Verse 17, what follows, that the world might be saved through Jesus. So there's this belief, and it's specifically in Jesus. Verse 18, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. Whoever does not believe in Jesus is condemned because, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Belief in Jesus is the key to life. This is what we're being called to over and over and over, that we would put our hope and trust in Jesus, and that would shape and form all that we are, all that we do, all that we think throughout our days. It is the foundation of the Christian life, and belief in anything else condemns us. This is why Jesus explained to Nicodemus that he needed to be born a second time, because we are born condemned. Okay, we're born condemned, and there's, it, it's not an issue of us acting better. It's an issue of us believing differently. To stop believing in small things and believe in 
the greatest thing in Jesus. And, and this is why you guys don't leave here every week with this list of things that you need to do. These are the actions you need to carry out so that you can be a good Christian. And you'll never get that. You'll never get it. Because the call in Scripture repeatedly and continuously is believe the gospel. Believe in Jesus. And all those actions will follow. We're going after the root, not the fruit. The fruit will grow. The fruit will come if the roots are taken care of. And that's where we want to go. We want to focus on ensuring that the roots are right. Because we're continually believing something, right? In all of life, we're always believing something. And all we need to do is look at our checkbook, right? To figure out what do we believe in. Look at our calendar. What do we believe in? What are we hoping in for satisfaction? What will give us what we really desire? What do we celebrate? What are the things that we anticipate day in and day out? Are we believing in Jesus? Is he shaping our days? Is he shaping our affections, our desires? We cannot overstate the necessity of belief. Now, when I was in seminary, I remember vividly this sitting in this class where this professor uh, was stating the importance of John 3.17. And I think being a professor at a seminary, part of what you need to do is you just got to be clever, right? You got to find these tidbits. You got to amaze the students and be like, oh, that's so creative. Um, it's not always a very, it, it rarely is a, a great thing to be creative with the Bible. Um, but he, he was trying to, to drive home the point that John 3.17 is, is really where it's at. So John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So he's saying, everyone likes to focus on 3.16, but what we really need to focus on is John 3.17 because he had this upbringing and this experience in, this in, in the church where he found Christians to be really harsh and condemning, which to be clear is a problem. It is a problem. Christians are not called to be harsh or condemning. So at some level, his argument was validated because this has been the story of the church. We want to condemn people but his argument and his conclusion was that Jesus didn't condemn people, so why should we? And, and in that, he was saying, we should not talk about con condemnation. We should only talk about salvation. So we should put all our roots down there. Jesus has come to save. Let's talk about his salvation. Let's revel in that reality. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. He's right that our job is not to condemn others. But at some point, we need to state why salvation is needed, right? To answer the why question for people, why do I need to be saved then? What's the point of that in the first place? My professor was so averse to talking about condemnation that he wanted to remove it altogether. It's as though he didn't want to read on to verse 18, 
And in doing that, it's almost as though Jesus' salvation seems unnecessary. And I, I left that class feeling like I was supposed to tell half the story. And, and in that, that salvation didn't even seem that good. Like, ah, Jesus just kind of slaps a little more good onto to my life. That's already good at some level. But, but verse 18 states, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So this goes back to Nicodemus and what he didn't understand. He didn't get that his first birth put him in this precarious situation, that he was condemned, that in his first birth he was fractured from day one. To truly love others is to make this known to them, not in a condemning way, not in a harsh way, but in a gracious, truth-filled way. Because the reality is, is that the experience of humanity is we all feel condemned. We all feel condemned to some extent. And we know we need help. We know that we need saving. So it's why when we find that thing in our life that we love, and we'll go to it, and it will satisfy us. It will please us. It will give us what we want. But as soon as we experience it, it's gone. Like a vapor. It was so good, and then it's gone. And, and this is part of how we help people understand that we are condemned. That this world is condemned because goodness goes so quickly. I felt it. I tasted it. I heard it. I saw it. And it was gone. It was like a vapor. It's like the wind. We, we just can't hold on to it. And, and everyone knows this at some level. Life does not go the way that we want it to go. Right? No one has that story where life is perfect. Where it's all put together. Where I continually have what I want. We feel this in the depths of us. We are disappointed. We are frustrated. We are angered. And this is condemnation. We feel the effects of it. Even for those who trust in Jesus, we feel the effects of living in a broken world. So after all of these imperatives are piled up to believe, John writes, or Jesus states, and this is the judgment. This is the truth that you all need to hear. And I love this. Judgment, so you see, he's giving a judgment, and it's very clear it's based on belief. Judgment is based on belief, not action. Judgment is based on belief. Verse 19 says, the light has come into the world. So this is the judgment that the light has come into the world. So first of all here, light is contrasted with the world. Okay, we talked earlier about how the world is evil and it's wicked. Jesus is the true light. So we see this contrast of Jesus is different than the world. Jesus is entering a world full of blackness, full of 
darkness. He is altogether different from it. So don't think that Jesus is coming into a world full of light, or even a world that has specks of light, as though there's some light and he's just going to improve it a little bit. It's not like we gaze at the sun and we're saved by that. Jesus is coming to do a new thing. So to think that there's some light in the world and Jesus is coming to improve upon that, that is, it's a very anti-gospel way to think, but it would be similar to thinking, I am good in and of myself, and what I need Jesus for is to take me across the finish line. He gives me what I don't already possess. But that's not at all the way that the Bible talks about what we need. It says in Ephesians 2, we are dead in our sin. We are dead, and Jesus is the one who comes and raises us to life. Okay, then verse 19, and we're going to move into 20 here as well. Because our works are evil, our affections are for darkness. Our love is for evil things. So another way that we could say this is we have hatred for God. We have hatred for God. Verse 20 says, everyone who does wicked things hates the light. So we all do wicked things. And this is telling us that that is an active hatred towards God. Now, I think it's easy for many of us to stop here and conclude, well, I don't hate God, right? Like, I, I'm not actively hating him in any way. I wouldn't walk up to him, to him and say, I don't hate you. But the intent isn't here isn't that we would just merely say, I don't hate God, right? Like, if I'm laying in bed with my wife at night before we go to sleep, and I'm like, hey, baby, I don't hate you, right? Like, that that's not going to do a lot for her at all. In fact, that's going to do damage, for sure, right? So the intent here isn't for us to say, I don't hate God, but to, to stir the deepest affections in us for Jesus. That's what he desires, that we would yearn and long for him, not just put up with him. So a question to kind of push into this a little bit. Do you think that the opposite of love is hate? Is the opposite of love hate? Does hatred always look like an act of vitriol towards another? So, suppose a parent-child relationship, okay? And this child is like a normal child. He or she yearns for nearness with his, his or her parent. They want to be near to them, to share relationship with that parent, to have time with the parent. And so this child asks normal questions that any child would ask. Can we go to the park? Can we play a game together? Can we wrestle? Will you read me a story? Can we color? And this parent rarely makes time for these requests. Instead, spending time flipping through Facebook, 
talking to friends, doing hobbies at some level. And every night this parent tucks their child into bed. And they say, I love you. And over days and weeks and months and years, this child understands. My parent says that they love me, but they don't act that way at all. This parent never loves me in ways that's meaningful to me. Do you think that child feels loved? That parent's not beating the child, not yelling, not screaming. There is no way that this child feels loved. The opposite of love is not always hate, but oftentimes is apathy. The opposite of love is apathy. And so we oftentimes hate through the avenue of apathy. Relatedly, maybe we think we're pretty good at not doing wicked things, but do we have deep affections for Jesus? Is our love for Jesus acted out? To, to love Jesus will cause us to give up things, to sacrifice hobbies, to sacrifice money, and here's the deal. None of us is innocent, right? We've got a level playing field right now. We are all in the same boat. God calls all of us near to himself, but to draw near means we've got to give up stuff that separates us from God. And here's the deal. In verses 19 to 21, we love darkness. We love our sin because we think that it satisfi satisfies us and because we think that we can hide our sin from others. And we want to hide our sin from others because of sin, because of pride, because of shame that we would feel. We hate the light because it will expose our wickedness. And we don't want people to think of us what they will think of us if they know the truth. Our hiding in the darkness is a depiction that we are living a lie. But if we walk into the light, if we let the light do its good work to expose our evil deeds, this is for our good. We work hard to hide our sin, and we'll defend even when sin is exposed. And the assumption in all of this is that exposure is bad, that it's doing damage to us at some level, that we don't want to be exposed. But really clearly what we see in these verses is that the exposure of sin is God's kindness to us. This is how God acts towards us in grace. He shines light on those things which are deceiving us and are ultimately destroying us. And at the end of the day, what we know is that either we can expose it or it will eventually get exposed. Maybe we can hide it for a long time. And in that, we let 
Satan put his hooks into us in significant ways. But eventually, it will get exposed. Eventually, we will be found out. The light will shine on our darkness. Now, to be Christian means that we let the light shine into our darkness. And in that, we create an environment where others feel comfortable to let the light shine into their darkness as well. They see that the exposure of sin doesn't destroy people, it actually heals people. It gives life to people. It renews them. It gives them hope. And so we want to create that kind of environment individually in our lives. It's a call of being a Christian, but also corporately as a church. We don't want to create an environment where people are scared to let light, light shine into dark places, where they feel that they will be condemned or treated harshly because of that. We all have dark spots in our hearts. We all need the light to shine in those dark spaces. And so for Christians, we live this way because it's good for us. It's how we draw near to God, but it's also one of the best ways to draw others into the Christian life, to give them hope. And this is a way by which we lead. So, in all of this, as verse 20 says, don't hate the light. Run to the light. I had a coach once that said, run to the fight. Run to the light. Let the light expose the darkness in your heart. It may show you to be something different than what you want others to think or what others think of you, but that's okay. It's actually for your good because what they think of you is a lie. And it will wear you out. It will exhaust you and it will ultimately kill you for you to try to keep up that facade. You want to be found out. And in this, what we see in verse 21 is actually, by our sin being exposed, is assurance of salvation. Because as the light exposes our darkness, as it, as it exposes our sin, what we see is that in that God's working in us. And it says in verse 21, these are the works of God being done in us. Our works are being done in God. This is him working and moving and shaping and saving in our lives. And so with all of this idea of running to the light, this is why I talk repeatedly, incessantly about being in community. We need to be in community. We need to be with people who care for us, who will love us, who will sacrifice their own good for your good, who will speak hard words in gracious ways, who will give of their time, who will give you ears to listen, but to get there takes trust. And it takes time and nearness and sacrifice, and it's costly to get to that point. But it's worth it. It's worth it. This is how Jesus designed the church to work, that we would be this for each other. This is how God causes us to grow. So for us to disengage, to not engage in community in this way, to not let light shine in our darkness is to disobey. And, and we could even go to the extent to say that it's unchristian. 
it's unchristian to not engage in this way, to not let light shine into our dark hearts. So to not live in gospel-centered community is to live in darkness. And, and we will never let light shine into our own hearts, like, or, or others won't see that in our lives if we don't first see Jesus' love and know that and encounter it and let that do its refining work in our own hearts. We need to know Jesus' love first. We love because he first loved us. And then that can get replicated in community. And then to not be compelled on mission, like Jesus is compelled on mission, like him coming to the world, him loving the world, giving up his life, to not be compelled on mission like Jesus is, is also to live in darkness. If light is not exposing our darkness, we'll be too fearful to go to others. We won't call others to it. We won't invite others into that because we'll be scared that what's in our hearts will be exposed, and we're just trying to cover that up. So this, this ultimately gets to our core values. Our three core values are very pervasive in this, these verses right here. Gospel. The good news of Jesus coming to us, giving up his life, saving us. Jesus comes to the world. This is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. The gospel creates community, and in that, light shines in darkness. We grow together as a community. Others grow together near or grow near to us and are invited into our community. The gospel creates this type of community, and the gospel compels mission. That we understand that people are born condemned, and so we go to them. Not to condemn them, because that's already the reality, but to give them hope and life and good news, which is the gospel. So in our gospel application this morning, look at your heart. What is it in your heart that you want to hide? Because we all have it. We all have that desire, that tendency. We've got stuff and junk in our heart. What do you want to hide? What are you ashamed of sharing with others? What do you fear people will learn about you someday? Look at your heart. Let the light shine in your darkness. And then look at Jesus. If you feel hopeless, if you're scared, if you're fearful because you see that in your heart and it takes your breath away, leaves you gasping to even think about telling somebody that, look at Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He who was not condemned became condemned for the condemned so that they would not be condemned. Look at Jesus. Look at how, he, at how he has come to you to save you. How he has come to love us by taking our condemnation upon himself. Because the reality is we were toast. We were hosed. We had no hope whatsoever. And Jesus came. And he took our condemnation upon himself. He loved us. So entrust your life your hope, 
your satisfaction, your fulfillment in him. Jesus, only Jesus, run to the light. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that in the midst of situations in our life that might feel heavy, that may feel dark, that may feel full of death, that yet you are the true light that drives out darkness. So even in the midst of despair, you are there. You provide us what we are needing. Though we may not be looking for you, wanting you, you are offering, giving what we need. So help us, God, press into that. Help us trust you to know that in you there is good news. There is fullness of life. There is everything that we are yearning for. So God, draw us out of ourselves. Change us. Transform us. Give us the courage to walk into the light and know that there we will find what we are really looking for. For that is where you are. Jesus, come for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If anyone wants to celebrate the